We're on a little bit of a uh, journey of late to see Jesus in a new or different way than we may normally have perceived him. Uh, As Lois alluded to earlier, we're working our way through a, a book by Philip Yancey called The Jesus I Never Knew. And as we do that, uh, we come this week to a chapter called uh, What Would I Have Noticed, in which I've just phrased as what would you have noticed. And the premise is that, you know, as, as Lois pointed out, the, the creed sort of uh, hits the bookends of Jesus' life and, and leaves us 33 years of, of undeveloped content, that m- much of which is, is in the Gospels. Um, well, at least the last three years of which is in the Gospels, and very little actually is known of his childhood, his adolescence. There's one passage where uh, he's, he's shown in his adolescence, and uh, those of you who are at that stage of life would be glad to know that he disappeared from his parents. They were traveling back from Jerusalem to their hometown, and Jesus just disappeared. It took his parents three days to notice that he wasn't with them, uh, that's because they traveled in large family groups. And, you know, well, I'm sure he's with, you know, Dan's family or Keith's family or whatever. Who knows, right? Um, and he wasn't. He, he had stayed behind and, and was in a temple uh, sort of reading the book of Isaiah out loud, preaching about it um, at, you know, probably 13 or so. And... Uh, his, you know, parents were kind of freaking out, as as you might. I mean, I if I if I go like an hour, not knowing where my kids are now, it's kind of freakish. So three days, you can imagine. Um, anyway, that's the only scene we get from Christ's childhood and adolescence, and everything else is kind of the last three years of his ministry. And what I would like us to do is sort of jump through a collection of passages with this question in view. What would you have noticed? What would you notice? What would you have noticed about this man, about his teaching, about his person, about his nature, had you just been one member of the crowd? Had you just been part of what everybody else was doing? What would you have noticed? What would have stood out to you? And then we'll talk about this uh, and, and try to try to bring it to some kind of a point uh, prior to the the flag dropping at Daytona, right? We want to get you home in time for that. I understand. I'm sensitive. I, I get it. So, all right. Um, so let's begin with the only passage that touches upon Christ's physical description. It's actually a non-descriptive passage, but. Here it is from Isaiah 53, verse 2. He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. There are very few depictions of Jesus that do not contain some romanticized image of strength of presence, right? But the truth is, he was just a regular guy. And he had nothing really standout-ish about his physical being. He was truly regular. Um, 
interesting that, uh, you know, God doesn't send Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, to be the redeemer. Um, He sends a a five-foot-tall, ordinary Jewish guy. Okay. Um, Let's jump to Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, verses 11 through 19, and there's, there's two things that happen in quick succession to one another. Uh, Jesus is, is sort of just coming into his own ministry-wise, and the main thing that people are noticing is that he's casting out demons from people who, are, who have been possessed by evil spirits. And as this is happening, people are freaking out. They're, they're just, they don't know what to do with this guy. Um, but you get this one little window into what the, the d- demonic realm sees or perceives and what they say in response to that perception when they encounter Jesus. And then the passage quickly rolls into his selection of the 12 uh, apostles. So we'll, we'll read both of those. They're, they occur right in succession with each other. Uh, so Mark 3, beginning in 11. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. And he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name uh, Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now we'll go to a couple of other passages where people notice things about Jesus. Uh, Matthew 7, verses 28 and 29. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And then Matthew 9, verses 2 and 3. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. Then John chapter 10, verses 27 through 31. Jesus says these words, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of his hand. I'm sorry, out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. 
And then from Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 through 27, uh, the disciples notice a couple things about Jesus here as they are in a boat. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. Does that make you feel better, Sydney? Yeah? Sleeping Jesus. Um, and they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O oh, you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? So part of our difficulty in approaching Jesus is we know how the story begins and we know how the story ends, but everyone who encountered him in real time had no idea. Uh, they, they really didn't know where he came from. Uh, in fact, the fact that he was living in Galilee was quite a bit mystifying to everyone. Um, you know, Galilee was sort of, uh, well, I don't know, you pick a state. What, what state do you make fun of if you live in Ohio, Kim? What's the state you make fun of? Michigan, okay. Well, my wife is from Michigan, so let's pick another state. Arkansas, can we, anybody from Arkansas? We're good there, okay, I think we're good. You're not, you're not from, nobody's from Arkansas, right? We'll, we'll settle on Arkansas. I think, I think we're safe there. I don't, know. I don't, I'm really, you know, it's fine, whatever. Um, but if you were, if you were in Texas and you were going to make a joke, uh, it, Arkansas could well be the, the brunt of that joke. Am I wrong? That'd be a fairly easy. And so if, if somebody said, Hey, uh, I got this new financial advisor and I'm putting all my money in his hands. You should use him. He's from Arkansas. All right, you might go, what? I'm not sure that's such a great idea. And what's he going to be investing in? Pork bellies? I don't know, okay? So Jesus was from a place that did not evoke a lot of confidence from others in terms of his legitimacy. And... <clears throat> He picks his apostles, his followers, his disciples. Eleven of the twelve are from Arkansas. Okay? Judas is the only one who was from, like, Washington, D.C., <laughs> Oklahoma. <laughs> he, he, Judas was from the capital. All right? He was from the Washington, D.C., so... Um, you know, if, if you went to college in D.C., that's instant credibility, right, Brian? Yeah. And Georgetown, D.C., it's all, you know, whatever. Um, okay, so I think you get the idea. Th this guy, um, 
really had, in, in worldly terms, nothing going for him. He wasn't handsome. He, he, wasn't, uh, he didn't have the pedigree uh, that people would be impressed by in terms of where he was from. Uh, in fact, uh, throughout his teaching and his time and, and, and the, the words of his followers, uh, people would be able to distinguish them by their Arkansas accent and instantly dismiss their credibility. Okay. Um, one thing that we glean from the Gospels as Jesus goes through life is that he was clearly human. We know he was born like all of us were born. Um, his mother gave birth to him, and when she did, she gave birth to a human being. He was clearly human. And I want to just talk about some of the things that we see in Jesus that reflect his humanity. I think uh, Philip Yancey points out well uh, one of those aspects being his vulnerability. Jesus was vulnerable. He was um, vulnerable in, in many ways. But when God became human, he put on, you know, he, he became one of us. Um, he became vulnerable physically. Uh, these passages allude to uh, some of that. Um, you know, just the physical, nondescript nature of what he looked like. Um, the fact that when he was in this boat, in the middle of this storm, well, what was he doing? He was sleeping because he was exhausted. And there are numerous times in the Gospels where you see Jesus literally escaping the crowds. He's just exhausted. And he either, he either removes himself to go pray or to go rest. Um, the disciples on a couple of different occasions have to go hunting for him. And when they find him, they say, hey, everybody's looking for you, Elvis. Come on. You know, you're on. And, and Jesus, um, in, in the, you know, many cases, like, He's, he's feeling so claustrophobic by the crowds pressing in on him. He says, like, go get a boat. I'm going to stand in the boat far enough out that if people wade in to get closer to me, they will drown. <laughs> I'm sick of these people pressing in on me. And he literally gets into a boat and stands there and preaches, all right, because he knows that nobody can swim, and so he's, he's going to have a safe distance at some point. Um, but he was human. And he was subject to weariness and fatigue and stress and all these other things. He was one of us. Um, he made himself physically vulnerable. That is, uh, in, the, in the ultimate sense, when he became human, uh, it, it gave God the, the ability to, to die, to physically die. Um, ultimate vulnerability, if you will. Um, Jesus was also, I think Yancey points this out very well, he was emotionally vulnerable. Um, you, you see him at some of the, the peak times in his life weeping uh, openly. You, you see him uh, praying, you know, God, if, if it is possible, take this cup from me when he's in the garden before his crucifixion. You see this in... in this freedom that he had as a man to be 
emotional. He expresses exuberance on a couple of occasions. Uh, he sends his, his disciples out uh, two by two to cast out demons and, and spread the word of the kingdom of God. And they come back excited, and he is actually more excited than they are. Um, he had energy. He had passion. Um, but another thing Yancey pointed out that I personally was very blessed by, he was not punctual. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See? No, yeah, no. <laughs> Sorry, Rick. You're gonna, you, need to, you need to buy one of those rib protectors that receivers wear. <laughs> um, but yeah, on, on a couple of occasions, uh, the death of his best friend, he was like four days late right? Um, another man, his daughter was dying, and Jesus, uh, I think I've got this story right. I may, I may be con, uh, confusing the two, but he's told that, you know, my daughter is dying. Can you come see her? And on his way, he stops to deal with another woman who's, who's in need and, and, stop, and is present with her. And you know the, the leader of that synagogue who was bringing him to heal his daughter is just going, come on, let's go, right? And Jesus stops and ministers to this woman and then gets up and goes to this guy's house and the girl's dead. And he says, ah, she's not dead. We'll take care of this. And he goes in and prays for her and she comes back and he's like, give her something to eat. Let's get on with our day, right? Kind of amazing. Um, but the point here that Jesus was emotionally vulnerable, I'm going to read you a quote from the fifth chapter of Yancey's book that we're studying through. He says, he seems excitable, impulsively moved with compassion or filled with joy. I'm sorry, filled with pity. The Gospels reveal a range of Jesus' emotional responses, sudden sympathy for a person with leprosy, exuberance over his disciples' successes, a blast of anger at cold-hearted legalists, grief over an unreceptive city, and then those awful cries of anguish in Gethsemane and on the cross. Jesus was human. He was vulnerable physically, emotionally. He, he lived through what we live through. Um, another aspect of his humanity that cannot be overstated is that he was relational. I, I love this little part of the verse in, Ma in Mark chapter 3 when he's calling the 12. He went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. Um, then it says, he appointed 12 so that they might be with him. He valued this togetherness, this, this group of friendships that he was developing here, like we do. Uh, you know, it's, it's hard to say that God needs anything, but the human Jesus, the part of Je you know, the, the, the fact that he was one of us, he, he desired companionship. He desired to be connected to people. Um, and a very central part of his humanity. He desired friendship. 
Um, and uh, this one, this may not be the right proof text because this is complete conjecture on my part. Okay, just want to be very clear. This is I, this is complete radical conjecture. Okay, but <clears throat> so let's say we have a group of guys and we go on a fishing trip. We finish fishing, we come back, we have dinner, we're sitting around. Uh, there's any number of things that can happen at this point, but one of the inevitable things is flatulence. Am I wrong? Am I wrong? Yes. All right. Did he really go there? Did he go there? So bear with me. I, I actually, I think about this. Did you hear the nickname that he gave to James and John? Was it James and John? You're not, you're not taking that? Just move on? It's just conjecture. I'm just wondering out loud. Is that wrong? <laughs> I just, I mean, okay. It's just a question. It's just a question. I put a question mark there. That's fair. What's that? <laughs> it's okay. It's all right. I said it was conjecture. I put a question mark. We're all good. I've said worse from here. Just wondering. Just wondering out loud. Sons of thunder, come on. How else do you get there? Jesus was clearly human. Jesus was clearly divine also. Um, When he lived, when he walked, when he related, when he taught, when he acted, he, he, he engaged others with this sense of authority, like he belonged here. Um, everybody noticed that. It's something that people picked up on rather quickly. Like, he doesn't teach like other people. There would be no question mark after the reference in the Bible if Jesus were standing here, right? He would just tell you the facts, the truth. Um, and as he, as he does this, as he teaches this way, as he relates this way, he displayed God's authority in his life. He conveyed that he possessed an authority that's greater than that which just humans have. So he was truly, clearly human, truly, clearly divine. He displayed God's authority. People noticed it. Even the demons noticed it, uh, which is interesting. Um, Maybe a little more quickly to recognize what was going on than those of us who were trapped in these physical realities in which we live. Um, He displayed God's authority, and he claimed God's authority. All right? He actually accepted the mantle. He said, yes, this is mine. This is right. I am that guy. I am the one that was promised. I am the Messiah. I am the Son of God. And when he claimed this authority... Uh, You see this in a couple of ways in these passages. He claims authority over sin. No one had ever done that before. Um, 
this is the first time in human history that anyone ever uttered the words, your sins are forgiven, with that kind of authority, with that kind of, of presence and confidence in what he was saying. Um, he claimed God's authority over sin, and obviously he claimed God's authority over nature. This was one of the great attention getters for those who were following him. Like they had seen him cast out some demons, probably wondered how he did it. Um, there was much discussion in the crowds about how he pulled this off. Uh, accusations included that he was himself a demon and that he was using a more powerful demon to cast out weaker demons and then, and then using that to display, you know, to draw people to himself. It's kind of a twisted uh, way, way of, of assuming uh, or predicting who Jesus was. Um, but his, his followers probably wondered, like, where does this authority come from? How does he do this? What is going on? And, and, uh, and he displays this authority. He claims this authority for himself over sin, over nature, over evil. Um, so he was clearly human. He was clearly divine. And he was clearly on a mission. Um, I think this is the component of Jesus that may be um, both most overlooked and simultaneously most obvious. He was on a very clear mission. He knew exactly what he was doing, where he was going, and why. And so he would do things that would baffle people, and he would just keep going and let them figure it out post-resurrection is when most of the clarity came. So let's, let's look at this for a second, that Jesus was clearly on a mission. He tells us in John chapter 10 that that mission is to gather his sheep. He's here to bring together the collection of souls that God has assigned to him. And he is very unapologetic about that. He says, this is why I'm here, to gather these hearts and souls together um, into God's eternal fold. And I, I love his emphasis there that this is an undoable action. What I have come to set in motion, the kingdom I have come to establish, cannot be disrupted or destroyed or overturned or undone in any way. And so he's come to gather his sheep into the eternal fold of God and to complete his Father's will. God is love. And when he looks out over broken humanity, his heart drives him, his heart of love drives him to action. And he knows that that action will require the death of his son. And he acts anyway. He moves, he chooses, he intentionally brings about the coming of a new kingdom. And in so doing, Jesus establishes his church here on earth. He tells his apostles that there are two things that he's doing with them. One is he's reproducing his message. He's, he, he calls them together to be with them, to have this camaraderie. And 
that they might go out and preach, that they might go out and extend the message of Christ to the world. And then he says that he also has them uh, there to represent his authority. Um, Okay. If I was there, and, and, and you or I were in that inner circle, and he said, go out and preach, okay? Let's look exactly at how he said that. Um, he appointed 12 so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach. Okay, I'm in. Wait, he didn't stop there. See what he says next? Um, and have authority to cast out demons. Um, anybody here comfortable with that? That's big stuff. That's the imparting of divine authority. And so what Jesus is doing, he's saying, we are engaged in the grand battle between good and evil. And you, us, we, are his agents. And he vests us with this twofold thing, his word, the authority of his word, and the authority of his spiritual power and presence in our hearts and lives. And he says, go. And when you go, take care of business. You have my authority. You are my agents on earth. And that may or may not terrify you. It doesn't matter. Because there is a, there is a dark and hurting world all around us. And God says, I, I love too much to let it continue to go down the tubes. So go. Preach the word. Cast out demons. Make a difference in the battle between good and evil. This is your call. And it will look different for each one of us. But Yancey makes a point, and I think this was in an earlier chapter, but it's a point that I may have already made in a previous sermon. I think it bears repeating. This little peasant with a redneck accent and nothing, you know, five-foot-tall Jewish guy from Arkansas. Um, there's no Jews in Arkansas. What are you talking about? Um, she, she grew, Laura grew up Jewish, so she can say that. It's okay, yeah, just, yeah, it's all good. Um, who has none of the, of the implements of success in this world. None of it. And he is standing in the backwaters of the greatest civilization that has ever been built up until that time, with the possible exception of some in China. We won't go into that right now. Um, and he establishes, because he is, is working on God's authority, he establishes a kingdom that outlasts that of Rome that still defines societies today 
all over the world. It, it is this, this little guy, nondescript man, has established the greatest kingdom on earth, the kingdom of God, that transcends all the ridiculous politics that we get dragged down by, but that says, you have a mission to share God's word and to exercise his authority in the battle between good and evil. Will you pray with me? God, our Father, we don't know why you would choose us. But you proved in the choice of your son that it's not about human ability. It's about divine authority. And so, Lord, we accept the mantle. We accept the call to share your word to exercise your authority here for the sake of your kingdom. Lord, use us to shine your light, to spread your love, to grow this kingdom that you started from nowhere, that it might grow and shine and give glory to who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.